Bethany Covenant Church Sermon Podcast. We are a multi-generational community in Berlin, Connecticut. Our services are held Sundays at 9.30 a.m., and you can find out more about us at www.bethanycovenant.org. So what is it that you love? Or maybe a better way to ask the question is, what do you want? What is it that you desire? I mean, there's a lot of ways that you could answer that question. You could say things like, maybe I could go for a hug right now, or maybe I could really go for some alone time. Maybe I could really do with some time with friends. Um, maybe you'd love a raise, or maybe right now what you really need is a job. Maybe you just really want the pandemic to be over, or maybe you just need a little bit less biology homework. Maybe you just want a taco. Let's think a little bigger than that. The 60,000 foot view of life. What is it that you really want? At your core, what is your desire? Author and philosopher James K.A. Smith says that we are what we love, that we actually become what it is we desire. He says that our desires not only push us towards getting what it is that we want, but that our desires actually form us into the people we are now and into the sort of people we are becoming. We become what we desire. We become what we love. Say you value security above all else. How you pursue that value or desire can change who you become. Some people pursue security and they become people who are more secure for others. They discover that they are wholly loved and they in turn can love others freely. But other people value security at all costs and they end up more paranoid than ever before. They pull into themselves. They withhold love. They strive for control. They pursued their core desire and ended up shaping them into people that they were ultimately insecure, the very opposite of what they had hoped for. So you desire comfort? Do you desire happiness or excitement? Do you desire security or relationship? What is it that you desire? How are you pursuing that desire? And how is it shaping you? Over the past few weeks, we've been hearing about the culture of the kingdom of God. And last week, Pastor Craig asked the question, how are you personally a foretaste of the kingdom of God? Is what we love shaping us into people who are a foretaste of the kingdom of God or of another kingdom? And what habits can we start building into our lives to help God shape us into people who love what he loves? So back in the first century Middle East, one thing that a student could hope for was to find a teacher. It wasn't like today's public school system. Instead, kids would be mentored into the position that they would eventually become their profession. So an aspiring carpenter would apprentice with a master carpenter. A farmer would raise his kids in all the things that it would take to be a farmer. And for those that wanted to become a rabbi, which was a spiritual teacher for Israel at that time, they would need to find a rabbi to mentor them. That rabbi would test and quiz them to find out if they would be good students for them. And not everybody made it, since rabbis could be very strict in their search, especially because students would follow their rabbi everywhere. They would do what he did. They would see what he saw, walk where he walked, 
they were meant to become just like him. Only the very best students would be allowed to take up the mantle of rabbi. So in John chapter 1, the scripture that was so wonderfully read for us earlier, thank you, Sophie, Jesus walks by John the Baptist, who points to him and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. John, two disciples then turn and they follow Jesus. Jesus asks them, what are you looking for? They call him rabbi and they ask where he is staying, which is another way of saying, we want to go where you go and see what you see. And he answers them, come and see. And that's when we should immediately stop and think something is off about this. There's no test. There's no hard questions. Jesus just says, come with me and you can find out. It's almost as if he just put himself out there to make them curious so that they'd come and they'd find out. One of the disciples, Andrew, then goes to grab his brother, Simon, which is kind of bold if you think about it. Simon wasn't there for Jesus's invitation, nor did Andrew ask Jesus's permission. But Jesus turns to Simon and remember, this is just as they've met. He calls him by name and then he renames him. Now, your name is Peter. So the next day, Jesus wants to go into Galilee. And so the text says he found Philip, who is also told, follow me. This is this time. It's not like the new disciple even asked to come. He just found and then is instructed to come along. And not only does he follow this out of the blue invitation, but he too goes back to find someone, Nathaniel, and then tells him that we have found the Messiah, God's promised deliverer. And it turns out, by the way, he's from Nazareth, which is a town which is not too far from Bethsaida, which is Peter and Andrew's hometown. Nathaniel is skeptical, however, so he challenges Philip a little bit. Can anything good really come from Nazareth? And Philip replies with the same words that Jesus used earlier. Come and see. And that's when this happens. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said about him, Here is a genuine Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael asked him, How do you know me? Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree. Nathanael replied, Rabbi, you are God's son. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered, Do you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than these. Then he said, I tell you the truth. You will all see heaven open and the angels of God going up and down on the Son of Man, the one who is the stairway between heaven and earth. So what have we learned? Well, we've seen that none of this followed the typical way that a rabbi would acquire disciples. Andrew and an unnamed disciple see Jesus and are told that he is the Lamb of God. And they abandon their teacher to then follow Jesus, who invites them to do so without any pretense. One of them then goes to grab his brother. Another one of them goes to grab his friend, both without invitation to do so. And yet in both cases, it's almost like Jesus basically takes credit for having called them too. In Simon's case, he gets renamed. And in Nathaniel's case, Jesus says he already saw Nathaniel before Philip went to get him. Jesus is saying that he is actually the one calling all of them to be his disciples. Andrew didn't call Simon, and Philip didn't actually invite Nathaniel. Jesus is saying he is the one that called them. And if you'll notice, all of this began because Jesus walked by. 
This should make of us think of all these other times that God walks with his people. In the garden, God walked with Adam and Eve all the time. In the desert, freed from slavery in Egypt, God journeyed alongside the people of Israel as a column of smoke and fire. And in Leviticus, God even says, I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. Jesus made himself present, and it catalyzed the curiosity of the new disciples. In every single case, it's Jesus that initiates their discipleship. Now, they all have to then accept the call themselves. Come and see, follow me, and that kind of thing. But this goes against everything that was expected at the time. You had to earn your place to be a student of a typical rabbi. But with Jesus, he goes and he chooses his own disciples. And to a person, they say yes. We tend to have well-worn paths for interacting with God. Things that are comfortable. Things that are used to when it comes to our spirituality. And most of them are actually really good things. The walk from the parking lot into the lobby and into our sanctuary to a pew we like. The long dirt driveway to the chapel at Pilgrim Pines. A particular song or style of music. A particular room we meet in with our Bible study or small group. For most of us, these are almost irreplaceable spaces and times that have great value in our lives. They've become sacred spaces for us. But God is not a God who is limited to one particular time or one particular place. God is everywhere. God's every when. God is just as present in things that are not as sacred to us, not as special in our minds. Think of all the times in scripture when God spoke to people, called to those people in the most ordinary moments or even really mundane situations. And because they had ears to ear, these ordinary moments became extraordinary encounters. Think of Moses. Perhaps the most life-changing encounter with God occurred in the desert while he was doing what he did every single day. The incredibly exciting occupation of watching sheep. There is nothing extraordinary about the day, the time or the place, until God meets Moses where he is at. He joins him in the daily grind by showing up in this bush. The ordinary moment shifts to become extraordinary. It becomes holy ground. I sometimes imagine the state of my spiritual life like I'm out on a camping trip with God. I see myself busy with the mundane tasks, racing around to try to set up camp before the sun goes down, picking up firewood, fretting about the tent in case it rains, getting dinner started. And I imagine God watching my frantic pacing, glancing sadly at the waning sunset that we could have enjoyed together, sighing and says, she just can't hear me when she gets like this. How many moments do I miss enjoying God's presence with me? How often do I add connecting with God to the list of things I do? Just like for the disciples, Jesus is already present, walking near us, keeping pace. And we have a standing invitation to enjoy God's tangible presence with us. He has already placed himself here among us, waiting and available. It's not so different from hiking here in Connecticut. 
unlike in other places where you hike to the summit and then back down, Connecticut hikes are less about the destination. There really aren't that many peaks to be had, per se, so it's a lot more like wandering in the woods. You follow the trail, basking in the sheer amount of greenery around you, but if you want a view, you might need to take a few steps off the beaten path. You might have to take a literal rabbit trail to get to the good stuff. Throughout this series, we are going to share some spiritual practices, habits, and rhythms that aren't necessarily meant to be written into your daily agenda. Rather, they can turn the ordinary, the necessary moments in life, like doing the dishes or going for a walk, into a space that God can connect with us into moments of deep listening, conviction, affirmation, even transformation. Anywhere God is can become holy ground if we allow God to make it so. In other words, these are a few of the ways that God will use to help us become that foretaste of the kingdom of God that Pastor Craig talked about last week. When we experience God's presence, it changes our loves it reshapes us, which is what Paul called being transformed by the renewing of our minds in the midst of worshiping God. The more we allow those ordinary moments to be times with God, holy ground, the more that we come to love who God is, and the more we come to behave like the God we love. Now, we've used the teaching of a theologian named Richard Foster in order to arrange how we process these practices. Some of these practices form us on the inside, they're inward, and so they are practiced by ourselves as individuals. Some are meant to help balance all the fragmented pieces of our minds, emotions, bodies, and spirits, and so we call them our inward-outward practices. Some are meant to help us see what God is doing beyond ourselves, and so those are times of outward practices. And of course, the body of Christ is not merely a collection of individuals. It's actually larger than the sum of its parts. And so some of these practices are meant to form us as the corporate body of Christ, which is called the church. All of them, though, are intended to make much needed space for us to meet with God. And today, we're going to focus on some of these inward practices. Many of these inward practices are what Foster calls Christian meditation. Now, meditation is not necessarily me sitting with my eyes closed alone for an extended period of time, trying to not think of anything. It's not a mystical experience. Christian meditation is simply the ability to hear God's voice and obey his word. It is contemplation, the understanding that every experience offers more than meets the eye that recognized or not, God is present. Inward practices are actually about making space in the chaos of our inner thoughts and emotions to recognize and enjoy God's presence with us. These moments of contemplation could also be called be here now moments. Finding a moment of contemplation in whatever you are doing to be fully present, taking it all in. That could be taking a walk in the woods, much like this one. My surroundings leading me to appreciate the creator who puts breath in my lungs and power in my legs and sustains all of the nature around me. Or it could be a moment far less inherently enjoyable, 
like doing the dishes. That is always a task that I prefer to just get done and over with. I'm always thinking ahead to the next thing. But to be fully present in that sort of moment could be to just focus on the job at hand. Enjoying the process of wiping something clean, thanking God for the meal provided and the clean water that keeps me healthy. God is present in all things at all times. If only we make space to notice him. Silence is another inward practice, and this one is hard for me. I live alone, and so silence can often be disconcerting because I'm left alone with all of my thoughts and emotions without anything to drown them out or to distract them. And also because silence just seems really unproductive. So I'm quick to turn on the background noise, the TV while I'm working and music while I'm studying, phone calls while I'm at work, radio when I'm in the car. I'm always multitasking. But external silence can help create internal peace. Rather than ignoring what's going on in our internal dialogue, it allows it us to acknowledge it and invite God into the conversation. Sometimes it's really important to intentionally turn off all of the things we use to distract ourselves and to let God help work us through the things that make us afraid in our own mind. Perhaps maybe the next time you are driving somewhere, you switch the radio off allowing for just a short time of silence. Another inward practice. The practice of breath prayer has been a new one for me, but one that has helped me enjoy silence more. Breath prayer reminds us that each breath is a gift from God and his spirit is nearer to us than the air we breathe. I have to breathe, so why not pray at the same time? This is how it works. As you breathe in, consider a name for God that is meaningful to you in that moment. As you exhale, 